If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the handout with you, or even you can bring it up on your cell phone. Um, But go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. As you're going there, what I want you to think about in your own life, I want you to try to think about what are the climactic moments that you can think of. What are the moments that were just climactic in what, they ha- what happened? Now, some of you might have been thinking, okay, a, a climactic moment. Maybe you're thinking of epic stories. You're thinking of maybe the superhero movies, the spoiler that I'm not going to give of when the superhero shows up, or maybe it's, it's in the epics of things like Lord of the Rings when, when the ring is finally destroyed. You think of these different climactic moments, but more than just in, in fairy tales or, or made-up stories, think about even other climactic moments that are more personal. You might, for example, think of the different events that have happened in your life. For example, I could think about moving to the States, that climactic moment that after that moment, everything was different in my life. We're getting married. We're having children. We can think of climactic moments as these moments where everything after that point, everything before was leading to this, everything after was changed by it. But even my climactic moments, they're really not that big. I could go maybe a block that way and none of the climactic things in my life have any impact on them. So we might even think of the broader climactic moments and moments in history. Yeah, just if you have one, what, what would be climactic moments in history? Lincoln, uh, Lincoln assassinated, changed the course of American history. What else? 9-11. Travel was changed. War on terror. All of those things changed. What else? Bombing of Hiroshima, war from that moment on was different because people knew that they could just end it with one bomb. It changed war forever. What else? Printing press, okay? One new thing that then changed that now we all have accessible to us the Word of God. We could think of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. All of these moments that are climactic that from that moment on changes everything. But even in those examples, we, we look at some of those and see that some people weren't really that, all that affected. When we talk about movies or things, well, if it's, it's a climactic moment if you watched the movie. If your personal life, the climactic moments are climactic for you, but really don't have that much bearing for others. Even in the world history ones, several of those took a long time to have an effect, or some people didn't even really care about them. But in our passage this morning, we are coming to the climactic moment. Not a climactic moment, the climactic moment of all history. It's not climactic just for the people who were alive then. It wasn't climactic just for the nation of Israel. It wasn't climactic just for believers. 
No, there is nothing greater in all of history. There is nothing that impacts like this all nations. This is climactic for all people. But we have this hour that is happening on the greatest stage, in the grandest spectacle, where all of the universe is observing and waiting and groaning for this moment. And as much as it is huge, it is immensely and intensely personal. Some of these moments when we've talked about with, with Hiroshima for, or these uh, 9-11, for some people it's personal, but mostly it's just something that affects all of us in some way. But this moment that we are talking about in our passage is incredibly personal. It is not only macro in its scale, but it's micro. It is for you. When we look at the climactic hour that Christ is coming to. So here's the question, though, for all of us to think about. Does Christ's life, the climactic moment that we're going to look at, and what you need to reflect on through this passage, how does it impact you? How does what Christ has done, or what Christ was about to do, how does that impact you? In our passage this morning, we're going to continually zoom out and zoom in. We're going to zoom out and see the big picture of what Jesus is doing, but then we're going to zoom in and see how that is supposed to impact the people immediately around him, how it should impact us. Here's our goal. I want us to be overwhelmed by the magnitude of what Christ did in a way that produces a dramatic impact and effect in our personal lives. What Jesus did impacts everything in a personal way. What Jesus did impacts me, it impacts you. Not just on Sundays, not just for believers, but for everyone. So here's, here's my request. I want you, as we're going through this, to, to, to engage your mind in a slightly different way. Every once in a while, we, we come to concepts that are just bigger than us, and we, we just get headaches. Like if you th- start thinking about eternity— Okay, well, well when, when does that start? When does that end? There's no beginning, the eternality of Christ. We start thinking about that, and it's just overwhelming. The magnitude of what we're looking at is similar in that we cannot comprehend or grasp the fullness of it. And yet, the process of wrestling with it, of, of reflecting on it, produces a result. And so that's what I'm asking you to do, is reflect. As we zoom out, as we look at the magnitude, be overwhelmed by what Christ has done so that it can change your life. Here's our big idea. Christ's climactic glorification serves as a personal invitation to join his global mission. Christ's climactic glorification, the big, serves as a personal invitation, personal for us, to join his global mission, what he's doing. So let's look at John verses 20 through 22. This is how it starts. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There's a little bit of, of humor there that the, these people are coming. They come to Philip. Philip's not really sure. So Philip then goes to Andrew and then they come to 
Jesus. But he, here's, here's the first thing that we're going to be seeing about this climactic hour. The first thing we're looking at is the trigger. What sets things off? What starts this whole process, this hour? Part of the irony that we start this passage with is that now among those who were, who were at the feast to worship were some Greeks. Now, when we're talking about the Greeks here, it's not necessarily meaning Greeks from Greece. It's talking about Gentiles. It's talking about people from the Greek-speaking world. It's non-Jews. And these seem to be God-fearing, Jew, uh, God-fearing Gentiles that they've come to the Passover to worship but they're not quite at the point where they're proselytes, or, or meaning they haven't become Jews themselves. They haven't gone through the process that the Old Testament describes. They're still seen as Gentiles. But so one of the ironies here is how the last passage ended in verse 19. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, they were saying that as a hyperbole. They were saying that of like, oh, man, look at what's happening. Every, we're losing. The, everyone's going to Jesus. But then in the very next verse, what we see is that the world indeed is coming to Jesus. The other irony, though, of the book of John that we've come to is that Jesus has come for the Jews. Jesus has come and presented who he is over and over and over again. The one people group that should have been prepared for him is the group that continues to deny him. Not all of them, but over and over we see Jews that reject Jesus. And now now we come to Gentiles who receive him. So now keep looking. So, So Philip and Andrew... They, they had these, these Greeks that say that they want to see Jesus. The, the word there for see is the, the idea of interview Jesus. They want to interact with Jesus. And Philip and Andrew go and they tell Jesus, and, and look at Jesus' response. Because Jesus doesn't do anything right now for the Greeks. And Jesus answered them, them being Philip and Andrew, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time. This is the hour. The fact that Jesus says, this is the hour, if you've been remembering, if you've been here with us as we've gone through the Gospel of John, this should make you think back and help us to zoom out a little bit to what's been happening. Because up to this point, what has Jesus been saying about the hour? This is not the hour. This is not the time. Back in chapter 8, verse 20, and then earlier in in chapter 7, two times the Jews seek to arrest Jesus, but they can't because of what? What does it say? It was not his time. Earlier than that, when Jesus was interacting with the woman at the well in, in Samaria, he tells her, a time is coming. There's something coming that soon, but not right then. The hour is coming, future. 
going all the way back to his first sign with his mother Mary. He's at the wedding, and, and Mary asks him to do something, and what he says to her is, my hour has not yet come. The other way, though, that we zoom out here, though, is thinking about, think of all the big moments that have happened in this, this story. We've had the virgin birth. We've had Jesus do amazing miracles in the temple. He's fed 5,000 over and over. He's shown himself to be the Messiah. There have been times where the crowds want to make him king. Just earlier in our passage, we had the triumphal entry where he is coming into Jerusalem. But at any of those times, did he say, now is the hour? No. But now, some Greeks show up, and that's the sign that this is the hour? How, how is that the trigger? If it's me, I'm looking at all these other things, and I'm thinking, oh, no, the, the, the time, the hour was when, when you raised Lazarus. That was the big thing. That would have been the moment that we would have called the hour. But none of those moments are the ones that he says are the hour. It's when the Greeks, when the Gentiles, when the world comes to him, he says, now is the hour. Go ahead and turn to John 1, verse 9 through 13. The reason the Greeks could be the trigger is because of what Christ's mission truly was. Right at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 9, this is what it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus comes to this hour, and it is far greater than what the Jews were expecting. He comes to this hour not to save just Israel. He comes to save the world, everyone who believes. This is what John the Baptist says later in chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, it's a bigger mission. John 10, 16, when we've talked about the good shepherd and Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The trigger for Jesus that the hour has come is when the world is ready. 
when the world is coming to him, seeking him, and they're saying, we want to see Jesus. That's a comfort for us. The the magnitude of that, of God had his promised people. And yet right here he says, I came not just for Israel. I came for the world. And I am going to wait. I am not going to go to the next step until I see that it is ready. He calls it the hour of the... He says the hour has come for the Son of Man which is a messianic term that comes back from Daniel chapter 7, that one like the Son of Man would come, that his rule would be eternal. So he's talking about himself as the Messiah, the Son of Man, to be glorified. Now we know what's coming. And, and, and just think through what, what all is encompassed in this hour of glorification. Death, burial, resurrection, exaltation. Some of those we look at and we say, yep, good glorification, that's a good term for that. Yep, Jesus is going to be exalted. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to go up and be again with the Father where he was. That, yeah, that sounds like glorification. But what about the first parts? The suffering, the sacrifice, the dying on the cross, the submission, all of those are part of this hour of glorification. If it's me, I'm not describing what is about. If I, if I knew, if I was in Christ's place and I knew what was coming up next, there's no way I would be using the word glorification. I'd be talking about, well, now is the hour of immense trial. Now is the hour of great suffering. Now is the hour of the greatest sacrifice. But Jesus looks at this and knows what this is going to and sees the entirety of the hour of what is happening, of all of human history. And he says, now is the time. Now is the hour. The Son of Man has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He is singularly focused on God's sovereign plan. This is the hour of glorification. So look then, what what are the terms? So so we saw the trigger, and we saw what time it is, but how is this going to happen? How are the term what are the terms that need to be met in order for this glorification to happen? Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here's one of the things that's surprising about this next part that we're going to be looking at. In this immense moment, if there was a moment where we're like, you know what, Jesus, just th- this is so big. This is so huge what you're doing. Let's just focus on you. Let's just talk about what you are doing. But if you look at those verses, do you, there's a quick transition of this is what I'm doing to then and this is what you must do. That's an incredible thing. A lot of times we'll go to passages that are, are macro 
and we're looking at the big picture. And then throughout the message, we'll say, okay, if this is true, then we work to apply it to our personal lives. Other times we come to passages that are very focused on us and then we connect it to the macro and say, the only way you can do that is because of Jesus. But in this passage, Jesus does both for us. Jesus talks about the big thing and then applies it to the personal thing. He starts by talking about himself. What is the hour of glorification? What is that first step? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, what was the trigger? Who came? The Gentiles, the Greeks. And yet Jesus isn't talking to them. Like they, they came, but he's talking to his, Andrew and Philip because he's showing something. The illustration he uses here is an agricultural illustration. The Greeks are coming. The Greeks want to be part of the harvest. Jesus wants them to be part of the harvest. But what needs to happen before you can harvest fruit? What happens before the harvest? Planting. The seed needs to be planted. The trigger is, hey, it's time. Some of you really enjoy uh, gardening. Um, I enjoy it. I'm just not good at it. But this element right now, we're in this moment that if you're into gardening, you're probably already getting a little bit of that itch. Maybe not yesterday and today with all the snow, but the other days where we got up to the 60s, you're like, oh man, maybe we should go out and start planting. But if you're a gardener, you know now is not the time to plant. What happens if you plant a seed before the ideal time for planting? At best, you'll get a smaller harvest. At worst, you'll get no harvest at all. The time right now, Jesus is saying, okay, the Greeks are here. That was my signal. Now is time to plant the seed. Jesus is the seed that dies that leads to harvest. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, unless if the grain of wheat just stays on your shelf in in those glass uh, jars full of different ancient grains that you might have at your home, unless it actually leaves there and gets into the dirt and dies, it remains alone. There will be no fruit. Greeks, you want to be part of the harvest, but something needs to happen first before you can be part of that harvest. The thing that needs to happen first is that I need to die. But I want to take this agricultural illustration a little further. Okay, it matters what time you harvest. And right now we're in that, okay, what's the precise time? But there's something, there's other things that happen. Before you plant, what do you need to do? You need to prepare the ground. You need to plow. You need to get things ready. Jesus right here is is using the metaphor, the illustration of himself as the seed that brings about a harvest. That's not the first time this illustration has been used. In fact, if you start going back through the Bible, you'll see more and more this idea. To David... He promised that his offspring would remain on the throne forever. 
Do you know what that word offspring is? And maybe your Bible even uses the word originally in Hebrew. It's seed. David, your seed will remain on the throne forever. But before that, to Abraham, Abraham, I will give you, and, and you will have many offspring, and through your offspring will all the nations be blessed. What's the word there? Through your seed. Something that's coming. There's a promise to Noah. For your offspring and everyone else, I will never destroy the world this way again. For your seed. But what's the first one? Where does this really start? Turn to Genesis 3. All the way at the beginning. Immediately after the fall, the moment that was the darkest hour for humanity, in this moment where, where it seems like everything's broken, it's never going to be fixed, this is the end, everything is hopeless, this is what God says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the feast, field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the opening story of the Bible, right then, God promises a seed that will bring a great harvest. A seed that will be a blessing to all nations. A seed that will protect them from the wrath of God. A seed who would remain on his throne forever. Do you see how this hour is not just climactic in the last three years of ministry for, for Christ. It's not just climactic for his life on earth. This moment, this hour is the climax of all human history. From the beginning, from the fall in the garden, over and over again, the promise has been pointing. There is an hour coming. And this is the hour that Jesus says, the hour has come. Now is the seed to be planted. Now will the seed die and produce an abundant harvest. But the terms, the method in which that happens is through death. He continues by explaining, and he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now this is a, a little, we're, we're starting to switch over from Christ to us following the example of Christ. It's not just me, it's whoever. Now is Christ the perfect example of one who is willing to lose their life? Yeah. But he's starting to point. He's saying, look, this is the, what I'm doing on the grand stage. But this is what it means for you. If you are one of my disciples, Andrew, Philip, 
lose your life. It, it, it's a paradox. Lose your life in order to keep it. If you love your life, you'll lose it. Now, we're not talking about uh, suicide. We're not talking about of this, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm awful, I'm all of those things. What we're talking about is something better. Stop following your own passions. Don't worry about everything that you want. No, there's something better. Stop trying to hold on to something. What you're holding on to is a vapor. Many of us can think of that illustration of striking the match when we were going through Ecclesiastes and seeing the smoke, it was there and then it was gone. Trying to hold on to that is futile. But if you give it up, it produces something great. This is the example of Jesus, the seed that is dying, that is bringing a great harvest. Now we are not, cannot die like Jesus. We cannot die and produce the same thing like Jesus. He is the only one who can be the substitutionary death for humanity. And yet, we are called to take up our cross. We are called to emulate him, not in the same way, because we can't do everything that he did, but we are called to follow his example, because that's exactly what it says next. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, Christ isn't having his life taken away from him. As we saw in John 10, he lays his life down by his will. But what we have now is that the truth that the Christian is called to selflessness not selfishness. That when we lose our earthly life, we gain a better life. That only through Christ can we do that, for only he can transform our hearts to love him more than we love ourselves. What does this look like? What does it look like for us to lose our lives? The world is telling you right now that everything you should do is hold on to what matters to you. Pursue your dreams. Pursue who you are. Be true to yourself. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying something that is totally counter-cultural. Not just for our day, but for that day. Lose yourself. Follow something better. Follow a better plan. Be part of this global mission. Christ's climactic glorification serves as a personal invitation to join his global mission. Is that our daily reality? Is the magnitude of what Christ is doing, does that affect every hour of every day of your life? Or is it something that we think about on Sundays when we sing some songs? Are we losing our life because we're pursuing something better? Again, this is what Jesus says he says to follow me, be where I am. Now here's the question, where's Jesus going? When he tells his disciples, follow me, where I am, there will my servant be also. Where is he heading right at that moment? To the cross. This is Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
The result of this is if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is how we gain that eternal life. We're not talking about works here. We're not saying that we are saved by works. He's talking to people who are already his disciples. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be my disciple. This is the litmus test. If you're really my disciple, you'll be where I am. And where I am is the death of giving my life for others. What's interesting is, is, is we, where we see how those disciples took that. They, they didn't take this as a, oh, well, it's metaphorically give your life. Symbolically, sacrifice. No, all of these disciples, apart from John, end up losing their lives. In the end, in John chapter 21, verse 18 through 19, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He's talking to Peter. And this is John's aside. It says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to the, said, and after saying this, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. It wasn't just a symbolical sacrifice. It meant a true sacrifice. And Peter embraced that. Because Peter, later when he writes his epistle, he says in in 1 Peter 2.21, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Do you see what Peter's saying? That the macro of what Christ did, this huge thing, had an impact on his personal life. That he saw the example of Christ and he decided to follow it, knowing that God had told him that he would be led to his death. As Christians, we we often like to call ourselves followers of Jesus. Do we deserve that title? Is that an accurate description for your life as you reflect on it? As I'm thinking about, back on my week, this, this last week, and, and how I spent my time, how much of my time would I say that I should be called a follower of Christ? One who is, how much can I look and describe that? And I was where Jesus was, because I'm his servant. This is really, this is not something I can answer for you. This is personal reflection. Are we following his example? The fruit of Christ's death is greater than just salvation by faith. The fruit is also servants who follow. That's what we're called to be. Servants who follow him. Christ's climactic glorification serves as a personal invitation to join his global mission. So now let's look at the work of Christ. We start out by looking at Christ's suffering. This is what it says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. This is the macro that we need to see again. Sometimes I think we diminish Christ's sacrifice to just the one-on-one relationship with ourselves. And there is that relationship, but we think, okay, well, he paid for my sins. Like, how bad could that really be? How much of a sacrifice was that? I mean, he's God. The fact is, just your sins, we we can't even comprehend the amount of the debt that we had. 
But it wasn't just our sins that he paid for. He paid for all the sins. He went to the cross and, and he was, and as Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, as humans, our suffering is limited. If we were to be captured and persecuted and, and we had the worst form uh, humanly imaginable of, of human suffering, if someone uh, wh who was decrepit and was awful and, and had this plan of I am going to cause you the greatest pain you could ever imagine, there comes a point where it maxes out because we're limited. We get to a point where it doesn't matter if you add more suffering to it. I'm not going to experience anything more than I'm experiencing because we're limited as humans. Now, Christ died as a human. He had to die as a human in order to be the substitution for us. But Christ also died as God, which means he was not limited in his suffering. See, I can't, if I were to die for other people, I could maybe have couple hundred of people in my minds. I could maybe reflect on X amount of sins. When Christ died, he died for all of it. He had all of it in mind. All of the shame. All of the weight. That's not something we can comprehend. And so when we see an infinite God here saying, now is my soul troubled, that should overwhelm us because it was our sins that caused that grief. It also comforts us to know that Christ, this wasn't easy. When we think of Hebrews 4.15, that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, we see that here. Christ sympathized with our weakness. He suffered. But he also submitted. Because what it says then is, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question. What should I say in my sorrow? What should I say in this moment of trouble? God, don't do this. Pick a different way to be glorified. No. But for this hour, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knows all of the history of the universe has been leading to this moment. There's only one way. And Jesus doesn't back away from that. He leans into it. This is the hour. This is what needs to happen before there can be a harvest. So he says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Where does Jesus turn in his moments of greatest trial? Not just here, but consistently, over and over again. Where does Jesus turn in his moments of trial? He goes to the Father. Now, if there's an element where, where we think humanly, you know what, I don't think I got to take this one to God. I think, I think I can do this one on my own. If there was ever someone who had the right to think that, it was Jesus. And what does Jesus do over and over? He goes 
to the Father. But this isn't just praying something that's a, a given in the sense of, hey, Father, I'm just going to pray for something that you've already said is going to happen because, you know, that, that's what it is. No, his prayer is an act of submission. He says, Father, glorify your name. How has the Father chosen to glorify his name? Through the Son's sacrifice. When he says, Father, glorify your name, he is submitting to that. He is saying, Father, glorify your name through me. Glorify your name through this hour. Glorify your name through my suffering, through my submission, through my sacrifice, through their salvation. This is what Jesus has shown over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. I do the Father's will. The Father and I are one. In John 13, verses 31 and 32, it says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's linked. This is what he says at the end of, of John 10 in that passage. This is why the Father loves the Son, because the Son lays his life down. It is part of this plan. Here's the truth that we see in Jesus, that suffering and difficulty are not valid reasons to stop our service to God. Suffering and difficulty are not valid reasons to stop our service to God. Jesus is troubled, but he goes through it. And then we see Christ's security. Look what he, the response that he hears. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. He knows that the Father's plan is happening. He knows he is part of God's great plan. I have glorified it. I've glorified it through every single day of Jesus' life in his obedience, in his submission, in his losing his life, and I will glorify it through his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation. The truth is that glory is found on the road of suffering, submission, and sacrifice to the Father. Glory is found on the road of suffering, submission, and sacrifice to the Father. Now, the qualifier there that is so important is to the Father. It's not every road of suffering. It's not every road of submission. It's not every road of sacrifice. It's those things as they are done to the Father, then are they glorified. But the people don't really understand. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. That's just an awesome picture. They heard God's voice. They really don't know exactly what it is. They misunderstand. But what they hear is thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But then look what Jesus says. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Again, grand stage, big picture, huge moment. The Father has just said, we will be victorious in this. And Jesus says, that, that wasn't for me. That was for you. Do you see the macro? Again, go to that micro, that personal moment. It was for your sake. So then we see Christ's supremacy. That he is supreme. He is the victor. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Christ's supremacy is seen in judgment. The world thought that the cross was Christ's judgment. They thought this is where the Jews are looking and say, we will pass judgment on Jesus because he is the sinner. He's the problem. But the reality is that that was not Christ's judgment. That was the world's judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. The world's judgment was the cross in that by the cross, the world is judged. How you respond to what Jesus does on the cross determines everything. This is what John, in John 3, verse 19, this is the judgment of the world. This is what it's talking about back there. How you respond to Jesus and what he did on the cross, that determines your life. But the other side is that the world's judgment was the cross, meaning that the judgment of the world was laid on Christ. Do you see both ways we use that? The world's judgment was the cross in the sense that this is what God determines who you are. Do you fall under him? This is what judge is, is the judgment is based on. But greater than that, the world's judgment was the cross. When we receive Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that serves as our judgment. Condemnation is removed because Christ absorbed the judgment. He absorbed the wrath on the cross. Christ's supremacy is seen in that judgment. It's also seen in the battle. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is the, the amazing truth of the cross. If there was any moment in history where the enemy would say, we are victorious, we just killed God. That's the moment. And yet in their moment where they think they have gained the greatest victory, that was precisely the time of their greatest defeat. Now, this is not saying that we do not still have spiritual warfare, that rulers and authorities are not still around us. They are. But when we come to the last times, when Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire, the victory was not of a battle that's happening. It's a battle that's already been won. It's the battle that was won on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now is the ruler cast out. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ is supreme in the judgment, in battle, but also in death. His death planted the seed that would bring a plentiful harvest. It says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You remember that the Greeks are what start this, the Gentiles, and then Jesus doesn't really interact with them. Here's the answer to the Greeks. 
And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. This is what needed to happen before the harvest. This is what needs to happen before the Greeks can come to him. Here's something that's beautiful in this. How did the Greeks try to approach Jesus? What did they try to go through first? A mediator. A Jewish mediator. They go to Philip and Andrew and say, Philip and Andrew, can you go on our behalf and talk to Jesus? But what did Jesus do? Jesus removed the wall of hostility. Jesus goes and through his act on the cross, he says, I draw all people. You don't need to go through a mediator. You can come directly to me. You don't need to go ask Philip and Andrew. You can come and see me. Jesus draws all people without distinction. Which is not to say he draws all individuals without exception. He draws all people without distinction. That means male, female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. All of them. It's without distinction. He draws them to him. That does not mean that all people are drawn without exception in the sense of universalism. Everyone's saved. No, the whole point of John is that we would see who Jesus is and then respond rightly. That's where the rest of this passage is going. It's not saying that everyone is saved, but it's saying that he draws all people, all kinds of people. The grand scale of what Jesus is doing has a personal impact. Then we see Christ's sacrifice. This is what he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to die in a shameful way, lifted up on a cross. This was reserved for the worst criminals. He was going to die bearing sin. But his lifted up is not only his death and being lifted up on the cross, it is also lifted up in exaltation. His shame His suffering, his sacrifice was not defeat, it was triumph. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Again, they don't understand. They're asking for more. And the irony is that Jesus doesn't answer them. Why? Because he already has. He's already shown them who the Son of Man is. They need to see it. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Again, huge thing. When Christ is lifted up, when the God of the universe dies, that is so huge. And yet that is the moment that Christ goes incredibly personal. When you, this climactic glorification serves as a personal invitation. What Christ is doing on the big stage needs to impact you. We've already talked about how it needs to impact you if you are a disciple. You must be his follower. You must follow his example. But before that, if you have not placed your faith in him, you can't do this. You can't walk in the light. You will continue walking in darkness. You will not know where you are going. Unless that while you have the light, you believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
This is the urgent response that is required from Christ's climactic hour. Right now is the time. Right now is the invitation. While there is light, the darkness is coming. Christ is coming. The time to respond is now. Does the story, does the grand stage, does the climactic moment of what Christ was doing impact every day, every moment, every element of your life? That's what we're called to. That we're supposed to reflect on the truth of the gospel, the magnitude of the gospel, so that it transforms our lives. Christ's climactic glorification serves as a personal invitation to join his global mission.